The reading is taken from Colossians, chapter 4, starting at verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. Here, he is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her home. After this letter has been read to you, See that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you, in turn, read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. <clears throat> I don't know if you, like me, have really enjoyed this study through this tiny letter of Colossians. I have loved it. I think it's a most precious letter. And it's a great joy to get to the end of it um, <clears throat> and feel as though it's almost like the climax. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because, of course, the letter is packed, isn't it, with uh, some amazing theology. We remember back to chapter 1, how Paul writes about Christ and the supremacy of Christ. Talks about Christ being the image of the invisible God. And it's that wonderful sense of Jesus revealing God to us. It's almost like, you know, the drawing back of the curtain, isn't it? That that, is, that which is hidden is revealed. And then, of course, uh, we, talk, we heard about the cross and the work of Christ and how uh, that victory that he won for us, how that actually works out in our lives, what that looks like. And then chapter three is that brilliant bit about how we, as those who have been made alive in Christ, actually live out lives that reflect who he is. So we ourselves can be loving and patient and considerate. A wonderful letter. But when we get to the, this bit at the end, I get really excited because this is the bit where, if you like, the rubber really hits the road.
because these are real people that Paul is talking about, real people in real situations. And I think we can learn a tremendous amount from them. It really is about the church. The church is this strange group, this global movement of real people in real places with real lives. And I know that for a lot of us, uh, we are thinking a lot of brothers and sisters around the world, other churches, other congregations. Um, you probably know, but Mark and I were in Amsterdam, also at a church called Christ Church. But you might not know that the Anglican Church in Kiev is also called Christ Church. So we are so united, aren't we? Not, of course, by our name, but by Christ. We are in the same family. So I want us just to pray again that as we look at these characters, these real people, so many years ago in a very different time, in a very different culture, we here in Winchester in 2022 would hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let's pray. So come, Holy Spirit, open our ears and our hearts to what you, the Holy Spirit, is saying. Amen. So we've got Tychicus and Onesimus. They're the postmen. So they come from Colossae. Colossae? I think is that Colossae or Colossae. Doesn't exist now, so that's okay. We can call it that. And they are from that congregation. They have visited Paul, probably with news of the troubles that the, that congregation had been having with false teachers. And so Paul writes this letter that we now call Colossians, and he gives it to them to take back to the congregation in Colossae. Uh, and with that letter, he also writes another letter, which we know of as Philemon. That's how I call it, Philemon. It could be Philemon, but we'll call it Philemon. And so if when you get home, you could read uh, Philemon as well, because it's Philemon absolutely goes with Colossians. It's like chapter five, if you like. <clears throat> the two letters were written together for the same people, the same context. So Tychicus and Onesimus are carrying these two letters and news of Paul. <clears throat> they want to encourage that congregation. They want to say, I know our leader is in prison, but God is not chained. God is still at work. So they've come with, they're going back with those two letters and with news from Paul. <clears throat> but I think that dear Onesimus <clears throat> must have been holding that letter to Philemon with great fear and trepidation because Onesimus used to be a slave of Philemon. Philemon was a respected church leader and Onesimus used to be a member of his household as, as a slave. But he ran away. And we think that it was while he'd run away that he met Paul and became a Christian. So Paul is now in this incredibly complicated pastoral situation because he has this runaway slave who needs to go back to his household, but he doesn't know how he's going to be received. So Paul is representing Onesimus, if you like. And in the letter to Philemon, it's only a page long, Paul asks Philemon, to accept Onesimus back as not just a returned slave, but as a brother in Christ. It's just the most beautiful picture of reconciliation being worked out in practice. 
And it shows us that reconciliation can happen. And it shows us that reconciliation sometimes takes humble confrontation and forgiveness and restitution. I think it's so wonderful that we know these names and these people through this letter. <clears throat> it makes us realize, doesn't it, that what Paul has talked about in his letters about that unity in Christ, that oneness that we can experience, he's actually working out through the lives of real people. So Paul knows that God brings together the things that are often separated. God brings Jew and Gentile together. He brings male and female. He brings rich and poor, old and young, gay and straight, Catholic and Protestant. He brings people who are often separated together, united because of Jesus. So then we have Aristarchus, rather, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, these three co-workers that also send their greetings to Paul. Now, we gather that Aristarchus was in prison with Paul, <clears throat> but we're not sure about the others, but we know that they all shared the same ministry. They were all on the same team, as it were. They were all doing a similar thing. But it was not always like that. There was um, what is written about in Acts called a sharp disagreement. That's a nice expression, isn't it? A sharp disagreement between Mark and Paul. And <clears throat> we read in Acts uh, 15 that Barnabas stayed with Mark and Paul went with Silas. They sort of parted company on one of their missionary journeys. <clears throat> you know, it's interesting, isn't it? When we read about the early church, we get a very real picture of a failing church, probably a bit like ours. It's a church that's divided, a church that's misled, a church that's broken in many ways. <clears throat> and I really believe that dear Paul would have wept many tears over the behavior of his fellow Christians, and I'm sure over his own behavior, perhaps as some of us have. Because I'm afraid to say, churches do cause pain. Perhaps I think the pain we experience in church is often worse than the pain that we experience elsewhere. People leaving churches causes us pain, even if they go to another church. People's disagreements and the way they disagree causes pain. Relationship breakdown causes pain. Bad behavior causes pain. And people giving up, giving up the faith, causes us great pain. And I think it's really important that we recognize this and are real about it, that we are honest with each other about the pain that we can sometimes cause one another. Some of us uh, have been reading uh, Bonhoeffer, and uh, he writes this brilliant bit in his book, Life Together. It's about living as Christians together. And he talks about God's grace in bringing us to a place of disillusionment. And we just read this little bit to you. 
innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian, set down for the first time in a Christian community, is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and tries to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great general disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and, if we are fortunate, with ourselves. So maybe there is grace in a sense of disillusionment because maybe it's God's way of bringing us to our knees, of recognizing our need for him. But maybe as a church, we need to be open to those who are deeply disillusioned with us, to those who have been hurt by the church. I would suggest that we need to listen to them carefully. We need to hear what they're saying and we need to act accordingly. It is true that the church can be the place where we experience the greatest pain, but it can also be the place where we experience the greatest healing. So when Paul, in his brackets, he didn't use brackets, I'm sure, but when he writes, just remember what I told you about Mark, welcome him, we see again this relationship healed. We realize that Mark and Paul are now co-workers, and Paul is rooting for Mark. God is always a God of the second chance, the third chance, the fourth chance, the endless chance. And the church is the place where relationships are healed, where teams are mended, where ministries are restored. So, these three, Mark, Aristarchus, and Justus, these three fellow G's, Jews, Paul talks about as being a great comfort to him. And I love that word, comfort. It really reminds me of the work of the Spirit. He is known as the comforter, isn't he? But it's not just to make us feel better. People are not brought into our lives just to make us feel better about ourselves. Comfort is a great word because it's about encouragement and it's about sometimes challenging and helping us to become more of who we are meant to be. I just wonder if we could pause for a moment and think, who is it that comforts us? Who is it who knows us well enough to challenge us, to help us become more the people God wants us to be? The other three people that Paul sends greetings from are Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. Now, we know that Luke and Paul are extremely close. They've ministered together and traveled together extensively. And uh, later on, sadly, in his letter to Timothy, Paul mentions Demas as having deserted him. Paul feels really alone at that point. Uh, he says that the only one who he's got left is Luke. But we can learn a lot from Epaphras. And I think Epaphras points us in the direction of 
what we need to do when we are struggling with church. <laughs> I think Epaphras gives us a clue as to how we can cope with what I've been talking about, our brokenness as a church. Because Epaphras wrestles in prayer. Epaphras is a prayer warrior. And Paul and Epaphras pray for the same thing. Uh, earlier in the letter, Paul says that he is working strenuously to present all these people under his care mature in Christ. And we see that Epaphras' prayer, Epaphras's prayer is that we would know the will of God, that we would stand firm and be mature, fully assured. So Paul and Epaphras' desire is that we would become mature. And I don't think they just mean mature Christians. I think they mean mature human beings. They want to see us flourishing, to see us as people who are confident in who we are and in what we have been given, people who know the will of God, people who can give to others, <clears throat> people who are living the life that is worth living. And I think that there are two marks of this sort of maturity, and I just want to share these with you. I think maturity means two things. The first thing is that maturity is about knowing our limitations. I know that might sound a little strange, but I really believe that as we grow more mature, we become more aware of our own limits and our own frailty. And actually, what that does is it helps us realize our need for the other. There was a Radio 4 program the other day, it's actually about desire, but it was really interesting to hear a psychologist talking about how maturity is not growing from dependence as a baby into independence, because that's what perhaps we've thought it's all about. He was suggesting that it's about growing from dependence to not just interdependence, but actually a recognition of our dependence. So growing from dependence to dependence. Because he was suggesting in his human secular world that actually what we as humans need is the other. And I thought to myself, yes, all good wisdom comes from the Lord, doesn't it? Because we do need each other. If this end of the letter teaches us one thing, it teaches us that we cannot do this alone. We need each other. And the other mark of maturity that I'd like to draw out is thankfulness. Now, there are books written about this as well, aren't there? You can go into um, Waterstones and you can buy a journal that just helps you write down all the things you're grateful for. Again, all great wisdom comes from the Lord. And I believe that to be flourishing, mature humans and to be the people God has called us to be as his children, we are to have hearts of gratitude. And that, that's why praise and worship is so important, isn't it? But I really don't just mean praise and worship on a Sunday morning. I mean a heart of praise. I mean that sense of when you wake up. I remember a doctor I knew who every morning he woke up and he thanked God for his health and his strength. It's that attitude that sees the beauty around us and thanks God for it. It's that attitude that 
thanks God for the things and the people that perhaps we find difficult because we know he's given them to us. Perhaps you can check yourself and if, like me, you sometimes have a critical spirit in church, <laughs> I'm sure none of you ever do, then you think, I wish we weren't singing this one today. Perhaps turn your criticism into gratitude for those that are leading us. Let's develop that heart of gratitude. Because if we are in that place of gratitude, we are standing firm. And of course, it's this maturity that we see in Paul. At the end of the letter, he takes his pen and he says one last thing. He says, remember my chains. He asks us to count the cost. He knows the Christian life is not easy. We need to connect with those who are suffering. We need to listen to our news. John Stott, do you remember, he always used to say Christians are given two hands, one to read the Bible in and one to read the newspaper in. We need to read both because we are in a world that is hurting, a world that is broken. Remember my chains, bear the pain. But he finishes the letter with the word grace. Grace be with you. And that ultimately is the final word, isn't it? It's God's grace that will keep us standing firm. It's only by God's grace that we can be the people he's called us to be as church. It's only by God's grace that we can have those hearts of gratitude when times are really difficult. God's grace means that when we can't, he can. God's grace means that he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So it is by God's grace that we, as God's people, can be a beacon of hope in our world. Amen.